Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 218. We'll begin the scroll of Esther with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about obscuring your identity. If the scroll of Ecclesiastes is an outlier when it comes to biblical canon, the scroll of Esther is equally outliery, if not more so. Of all the works in the Tanakh, not one shred of Esther was found in the scroll-filled jars of the Qumran community of the Dead Sea. The story is one of palace intrigue, a thoroughly secular, entertaining tale, not about how idolatry is bad and God is ultimately good, or how God punishes the wicked with exile. Esther is a fun, rollicking romp in the end. And the story also accepts Jewish dispersion as a matter of course. Nowhere in the story is it mentioned that the Jews of the Persian Empire long to return to their ancestral homeland or even mope about slightly as they supposedly wither in exile. The opposite seems to be true. And I should make explicit, the story doesn't take place in the land of Israel, but in Persia, and is replete with many Persian loanwords sprinkled throughout the scroll, which also means that the story dated from the period where the Persian Empire existed and its Jews understood the language. Persia was renowned for its openness to other cultures. This was policy since the empire's earliest days under Kurash or Cyrus, as evidenced by the Cyrus Cylinder from October of 539 BCE, which sets out Cyrus's intentions for the many people in his dominion. Quote, I sought the welfare of the city of Babylon and all its sacred centers, as for the citizens of Babylon, upon whom he imposed a corvée which was not the gods' wish and not befitting them. I relieved their weariness and freed them from their service. Marduk, the great lord, rejoiced over my good deeds, and in peace before him we moved around in friendship. By his exalted word, all the kings who sit upon thrones throughout the world, from the upper sea to the lower sea, who live in the districts far off, the kings of the west who dwell in tents, all of them, brought their heavy tribute before me, and in Babylon they kissed my feet, from Babylon to Ashur and from Susa. Agad, Eshnuna, Zamban, Meturnu, Der, as far as the region of Gutium, the sacred centers on the other side of the Tigris, whose sanctuaries had been abandoned for a long time, I returned the images of the gods who had resided there to their places, and I let them dwell in eternal abodes. I gathered all their inhabitants and returned them to their dwellings. In addition, at the command of Marduk, the great lord, I settled in their habitations in pleasing abodes, the gods of Sumer and Akkad, whom Nabonidus, to the anger of the lord of the gods, had brought into Babylon. May all the gods whom I settled in their sacred centers ask daily of Bel and Nabu that my days be long, and may they intercede for my welfare. And so we begin our tale in the third year of the reign of King Ahasuerus, ruler of lands from India to Kush, according to the scroll, and host of a six-month-long party for all of his courtiers. And if that epic rager was not enough, at its conclusion, Ahasuerus hosted a separate general admission event in the gardens of the palace for, quote, all the people who were in Shushan, the capital, from the greatest to the least. 
What the reason for the first party or the second isn't really discussed, but each event is designed to highlight the king's vast wealth and fine taste, with the halls bedecked in, quote, white linen, indigo cotton fastened with cords of fine crimson cloth on silver cylinders and marble columns, gold and silver couches on a paving of alabaster and marble, and mother of pearl and black pearl. And drink was proffered in golden vessels and vessels of various kinds, and abundant royal wine in kingly fashion. Seven days into this revelry, where one can assume all the participants were thoroughly pickled at this point, the king decides to show off yet another aspect of his vast wealth and fine taste. Quote, he said to Mehuman, Bizeta, Hashbona, Bigeta, Agabtha, Zethan, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with the royal crown to show her beauty to the peoples and the ministers, for she was comely to look at. Vashti's reply? Oh, hell no! To which the king replied in kind? Oh, hell no! And his courtiers further wind him up, saying, quote, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the ministers and all the peoples that are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's act will go out to all the women to hold their husbands in contempt in their eyes, when they will say, King Ahasuerus said to bring Vashti before him, and she did not come. Damn! And with that, Vashti is stripped of her crown, and an edict is issued as a warning to all of Persia's wives to listen to their husbands. Quote, to every single province in its own writing and to every single people in its own language, that every man should rule in his home and speak his people's language. Chapter 2 begins with Ahasuerus emerging from his hangover to realize that he is now queenless. But fear not, the king's lads have a great idea. Quote, let virgins comely to look at be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officials in all provinces of his kingdom, and every young virgin woman comely to look at be gathered in Shushan at the women's house by Hegai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women. And let them be given unguents, and the young woman who will be pleasing in the eyes of the king shall rule in Vashti's stead. Meanwhile, while unguents are being distributed, we are introduced to another main character, Mordechai, a Shushanite Jew and Benjaminite descended from the elites, exiled from Jerusalem in the first wave in 597 BCE by the wicked Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. He is also the guardian of his uncle's daughter, that is, his orphaned first cousin Hadassah, otherwise known as Esther. So despite what y'all heard in Sunday school, Mordechai is not Esther's uncle. Mordechai is Esther's first cousin, who he raised as a daughter. And before you can say, Mordecai's father, Abraham H. Parnassus. Esther is swept up in the hysteria and finds herself dipped in all them unguents, ready for the king. But Mordechai charges her with one critical task. Do not tell anyone you're a Jew. And apparently it takes a year for all the unguents to take effect, six months in myrrh and six months in perfumes and other women's unguents. And finally, it's Esther's turn, more than a decade, apparently, after that fateful rebuff by Vashti and Ahasuerus is smitten, quote, And the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor before him more than all the virgins. And he put the royal crown on her head and made her queen in Vashti's stead. Of course... There's another party to celebrate. And scene. 
Sometime later, Mordechai is hanging out at the king's gate when he overhears two royal eunuchs plotting to murder the king. So he tells Esther, and Esther tells the king, and quote, the matter was searched out and found to be so, and the two of them were impaled on stakes, and it was written down in the book of Acts before the king. Chapter 3 introduces us finally to the antagonist of our story, Haman the Agagite, the king's first minister. Haman is so revered and feared that all the king's servants prostrate themselves before him when he passes, all except one, Mordechai. Despite all the urgings of the servants of the king, Mordechai still refuses to bow. The text doesn't really tell us why. But word of this finally reaches Haman himself. This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. And Haman will not be satisfied by making Mordechai suffer. All the Jews should pay the price for Mordechai's insolence. Haman casts lots or Pur, which gives the festival commemorating these events its name Purim, and it is determined in the month of Adar all the Jews in the empire will be exterminated. And how does Haman sell this idea to the king? Easy, just appeal to the age-old trope and canard used to dehumanize and vilify any minority in your midst. Quote, There is a certain people scattered and separate from the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, and their rules are different from every people's, and they do not observe the king's rules, and it does not pay for the king to leave them in peace. If it pleases the king, let it be written to wipe them out, and 10,000 talents of silver will I measure out to the court overseers to bring into the king's treasury. The king trusts his prime minister, so he agrees to the plan, and the chapter concludes with Haman and the king sitting down to drink while, quote, the city of Shushan was confounded. So I want to circle back to a point I made at the beginning of this episode about how truly outliery the Scroll of Esther is. If you think about it for a moment, it really shouldn't be in the Tanakh. Of all the books and scrolls, it's the most farcical, fanciful, satiric, burlesque, carnivalesque, and most importantly, detached from historical reality. For example, if Mordechai was exiled with Jehoiachin, as it recounts in chapter 2, then he would have been over a hundred years old at the time of Xerxes I, the Persian king believed to be Ar Ahasuerosh. Second, if Esther was Ahasuerus' queen, no one else seemed to know. Herodotus reports that Xerxes I was married to a Persian general's daughter named Amnestris. Persian law also requires the queen to be of Persian blood and nobility, so yeah, that. Third, if Mordechai was a well-known Jewish courtier, as we read in chapter 3, how did no one in the palace connect the Jewish dots and figure out that his cousin-slash-daughter Esther whom he visited daily, was also a Jew. And sure, other books are similarly disconnected from history, like, for example, the Exodus narrative. But there, as in those places, it did so in service of a grander purpose and narrative. But if the miracle of Purim celebrates the salvation of God's people, why is God never mentioned in the text? In fact, until chapter 2, there's no mention of God or God's people at all. Perhaps... Uh, because this narrative has a different purpose. Perhaps it's for entertainment purposes. Can it be? Anybody else feel like a little giggle? 
I mean, the Emperor of Persia is not a powerful figure, but a bumbling, obtuse Muppet who seems to go along with anything his courtiers tell him. I am too smart. S-M-R-T. I mean, S-M-A-R-T. The meteoric rise of Esther and later her cousin father to the heights of power is also dramatized for effect without any consideration for plausibility. And Haman's extreme reaction in genocidal rage is broad in its diabolical mustache twirling. Leader was a wolf who got around on two feet. His name, Snidely Whiplash. His occupation, Warmonger. There is a surprising lack of spiritual concerns in this tale. There's no covenant, no God. In fact, the only indication of anything religious comes up in the context of it being disguised. As mentioned before, Mordechai tells his cousin daughter Esther to hide her Jewishness. Why no one puts it together that the Jew hanging around is somehow connected to the new queen is, as I said before, curious, but it's the one thing Mordechai tells Esther before sending her off to the unguent treatment, and she keeps to it. Now, this is part of a long tradition of disguising women in the Tanakh. Genesis 12, Avram and Sarai are heading down to Egypt because of the famine ravaging Canaan. As they approach border control, Avram tells Sarai, quote, Look, I know you are a beautiful woman, and so when the Egyptians see you and say she is his wife, they will kill me, while you they will let live. Say, please, that you are my sister, so that it will go well with me on your account, and I shall stay alive because of you. And so, for the rest of their stay in Egypt, Sarai pretends to be Avram's sister. This leads to some hijinks, plagues, and an angry pharaoh. This happens again, almost to the letter eight chapters later, when Avram sojourns in the kingdom of Gerar because of famine. This time, there's only a dream warning, and the matter is resolved peacefully. This story repeats a third time, this time with Yitzchak and his wife Rivka, and the same Avimelech, king of Gerar. This time, however, the ruse is discovered rather quickly, when the king happens to look out his window to see Yitzchak and Rivka engaging in definitely non-sibling-like behavior. What is the reason for this duplicitousness? The text tells us each time that the men fear for their lives. Now, we have to take their word that the Egyptians and Philistines were in the habit of murdering men to take their wives, even though there's no evidence of this practice anywhere else in the Tanakh or in the archaeological record. And in fact, the only person in the Tanakh to actually do this is King David. This is not a good look for Avram or Yitzchak, especially as these stories so closely follow God's pledge to make them prosperous. So props to the Torah for keeping these stories in, you know, keeping our heroes real and all that. And traditional commentators twist themselves into pretzels to demonstrate that what the patriarchs did really wasn't as bad as it looked. But others like Nachmanides call it for what it is, a hide-saving ruse perpetrated out of faithlessness that God would protect them from harm. However, there is one more take that puts this thrice-deployed ruse into a wholly different context. Perhaps it's part of a grift. It's a classic scam, really. You tantalize the mark with an attractive woman, present her as available, and when the mark moves in, makes his intentions known, and takes the woman into a private space, you send in your accomplice. He bursts in, all out rage and anger. What are you doing with my wife? How dare you, sir? The woman begins to scream and beg for forgiveness, and the mark, so flummoxed and taken aback by the accusation and the now-revealed impropriety and the potential for violent retribution, he'll give you anything to shut you up Take the woman away, and for the love of Mike, keep the scandal out of the papers. 
which is basically what happens each time to similar degree. Once the jig is up and the woman is revealed to be the wife and not the sister, either by God or by horniness, the king is aghast and presents piles of cash and prizes to the husband to clean up the mess and make it go away. In each instance in Genesis, order is restored and our hero's pockets are fattened. What happens in Esther is not all that different. Mordechai asks Esther to misrepresent herself, but it's a sin of omission, not a sin of commission. He doesn't ask Esther to say she's an idolater, just not to say that she's a Jew. Achashverosh's courtiers aren't going to be looking too closely for that kind of thing anyway. They're all about those unguents. But there's no indication whatsoever that coming out as Jewish would put Esther in danger or kibosh her chances at winning the contest. Mordechai, like the patriarchs, is kind of grifting. It's not for personal gain, though, but for collective safety. He, too, is hoping to position Esther in a sensitive place so that, if needed, he can burst in and drop a bomb on the king that his beloved wife is a Jew and leverage that realization to his community's advantage. And as the text soon apprises us, he's not wrong to be worried about this, as we discover the king's first minister is a repellent anti-Semite. Haman will arguably debut what will become a classic canard against the Jewish people. What's interesting to note here is Haman's use of the word dat, a Persian loanword we use today to mean religion, but Haman uses to mean rules or practices, or as Mordechai Kaplan would say, folkways, which puts them at odds, not only with the mainstream practices of people within the empire, but also at odds with the dat of the king himself. But as I said before, this runs counter to everything we know about the Persian empire and Achashverosh, who is really more interested in having a good time than sponsoring genocide. Our story has taken a dark turn, and Mordechai's greatest fears are coming to pass. But as long as Mordechai has a plan, we are not yet lost. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 219, when we continue in the Scroll of Esther with chapters 4 through 7.